0: I live in the state of Illinois, which has a very strong biometric privacy act, and I'm just the other day I got a check from Facebook for something they did. I don't know what, but I'll take it. Um, I think what this means, though, is that the average person who doesn't care at all about privacy is now starting to care.
1: Six hundred and fifty million. That's how much Facebook's parent company, Meta agreed to pay last year to settle claims that it illegally collected biometric data from the people using its website. And just this winter, the Illinois Supreme Court ruled that fast food giant White Castle would have to face similar claims for allegedly scanning workers' fingerprints without their consent. The burger brand said the ruling may cost them more than $17 billion. That's a lot of sliders. Hi, I'm Doug Thompson, and today on Let's Converge, we're talking data privacy and the public Painful consequences of not taking it seriously. Strong data privacy laws have been in place in Europe for several years, and now various states in the U.S. are debating passing similar legislation, and enterprises are scrambling to keep up. Joining us today is Safiya Kazi, a Privacy Professional Practice Advisor at Osaka. that's the Information System Audit and Control Association. Safiya is here to discuss a new Osaka survey called Privacy in Practice 2023 in which they polled nearly 2,000 privacy and security professionals to find out who's prioritizing data privacy, who's not, and how enterprises can practice better privacy by design. How are you doing today, Safia? I'm great, thanks for having me. You know, we talk a lot about security breaches on this podcast, but what a lot of people don't realize is what results from a breach, loss of privacy. And that's where you come in and what your organization is all about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. A lot of people think about security, but they may not necessarily think about the privacy implications of a security breach. Um, I sometimes have people ask me, you know, what's the difference between security and privacy? Aren't they synonymous? To which I say, you absolutely cannot have privacy without security, but you could have fantastic security measures in place and do a really bad job of privacy. So. Is privacy a subset of security? Kind of, but not really. The two, of course, go very hand in hand. Um, And I'm sure as we talk about our survey findings today, you'll see that privacy professionals and security professionals work really closely to best protect the privacy of people who are giving over their valuable information.
1: Well, let's start with that. I mean, every month we get a new headline because some company are paying fines now. I mean, there's there's mm-hmm. big dollars associated with this loss of privacy.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Here in the United States, we have a very strange patchwork of privacy laws where depending on the state you live in, you may have some more protections than somebody living just a few hours away from you. Um, this, of course, also makes it really hard for organizations who just kind of have a moving target of what is compliance, what is it that they need to do, especially because, you know, just recently Iowa passed a privacy law I think overall, boards are starting to understand that privacy is something they need to think about just because we've all seen the negative headlines from organizations that don't respect privacy and the massive fines that they have to pay. And that's saying nothing of the reputational damage that affects their bottom line. Um, so ISACA did a state of privacy survey. And in this, we found that compared to last year, boards seem to be stepping it up. It looks like funding and resources for privacy are getting a lot better. We're seeing larger privacy staff sizes. Um, People who work in privacy are less likely to say that they feel that they're understaffed. They're less likely to say that their privacy budget is underfunded. And overall, it seems like more people believe that their boards are adequately prioritizing privacy compared to just last year.
1: Wouldn't some of these smaller companies, are they more challenged than some of these larger well-resourced companies?
0: I think so. A lot of times they don't have a dedicated privacy team. They have a security person who is then tasked with also doing privacy in addition to all of their security work, and I'm sure as our listeners know, security teams are already feeling the crunch of you know staffing shortages and just having to do a lot with very few resources. So when you throw privacy tasks on top of that, that makes it even more complex. So I would absolutely say that smaller organizations are definitely struggling with this.
1: Now, when you talk about privacy by design, and, and, and I used to work for uh, I used to work for Microsoft, where we talked about security by design when we started mm-hmm. the operating system. And it really changed the game. But when you're talking about privacy, it's more than technical controls that go along with that. So explain on the, about the design piece of that. How does that sort of look?
0: Right. So privacy by design is thinking about the user, that's one of the key things. It's of course the systems that you're building, but it's also the users who are going to be using what you're building. Um, So there are seven key tenets of privacy by design. And the first one is proactive, not reactive, preventative, not remedial. Basically privacy is not a bolt on. You're thinking about it from before you even start building things. It's about privacy being the default setting. People shouldn't need to do anything to have their setting be one that protects privacy. It should be embedded into the design. So this is kind of where we get it more of that technical piece of privacy. It's also about full functionality, positive sum, not zero sum. We shouldn't need to trade off security for privacy or usability for privacy. Realistically, we can have privacy and achieve other objectives. It's also about end-to-end security and full life cycle protection. This is so crucial when we're thinking about data that we have. How long are we holding on to it? How are we protecting it even when we're done using it? Do we need to hold on to it? It's about visibility and transparency. And so communicating clearly and ensuring that everybody in the organization and people giving their data know what they're doing And then the final, and one of my favorite principles, is the idea of respecting user privacy, keep it user-centric. If you think about the user, you're going to be developing systems that are easy to negotiate from a privacy perspective. And if you are breached, which unfortunately is just probably going to happen at some point, you can really limit the damage that's happening because the default is that you're protecting privacy and you're not collecting excessive amounts of information, which can really help the data subject who is compromised.
1: So in in reading the survey, you know, I found that at least sixty percent of the enterprises are starting to practice this privacy by design, at least frequently. You know, mm-hmm. maybe not always. Um, what compared to other statistics, it seems like we're heading in the right directions. But what do those folks that are in the rarely or never category? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what what what's their Is it a barrier to entry or is it just, a a, you know, that they have been hiding under a rock or what?
0: (laughs) I, you know, to be honest, I'm sure there are some people who are hiding under a rock, (laughs) but I honestly think a lot of it is just a lack of resources. Um, I think a lot of people know that they should be doing privacy by design as often as possible, but they just can't.
1: In security and business continuity, you know, they have a backup or they have a disaster recovery plan, but... If it's not tested, it's sort of worthless. Mm-hmm. So in the case of the privacy, is there a similar type thing where we we throw in a scenario, maybe a tabletop drill or something? Hey, we've had this leak of data. What you know, is there, I mean, is there some way to do that?
0: Potentially. I have heard some people say that their organization tries to do privacy tabletop exercises. I personally think the Bigger challenge. Uh, So we asked our survey respondents, Have you experienced a material privacy breach? And almost 20% said, We don't know. That to me shows you don't know your data. I think it means that they know, okay, we had a security breach, but what data was it? Was it personal information? What was taken? What was viewed? So I think as far as understanding, you know, how to respond in a breach, the first thing you can do is understand your data so that if a system is compromised, you know what data is compromised and what the impact might be to your data subjects.
1: And that goes back to the design piece of that. If you know what silos and what areas your data is in and what is there, what type of Mm -hmm. data, then it's a little bit easier to triangulate. Okay, what did we lose from that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are there organizations that you can hire to come in and help you do like a consultancy or something?
0: Absolutely. A lot of our survey respondents actually said that they are relying on outside consultants or contractors to help them with privacy related tasks. I think this can be helpful. Something else that organizations are also doing is looking internally to see if they have people who are maybe experts on certain technologies or certain systems, but aren't experts in privacy. And can they get on-the-job training? That can be a really great way to not have to worry about posting a job description and potentially spending six months trying to find the right person for a role. Um, But yes, there are absolutely consulting agencies that can help people with their privacy-related tasks.
1: And that so you sort of reminded me of. So I was looking in the survey there, and you talk about who's accountable for privacy. And you know, it, it was, of course, a chief privacy officer and comes What I didn't see is it's sort of like security, that's really everybody's job, isn't it? Yeah,
0: I would totally agree. I mean, some of it I think is going to depend on the way your organization is structured, who reports into whom. Um, but I absolutely agree. I think privacy is kind of everybody's job. Um, you know, we were talking about. Some smaller organizations, they may struggle. So what can they do? Provide privacy awareness training to everybody in the organization. It may seem small, but just once a year, if you tell people, you know, let's verify who's calling if they're trying to get personal information, something that small can actually go a long way in protecting your data subject's privacy.
1: What surprised you in the survey, if anything?
0: The one thing that really surprised me was that more people didn't say that they plan to use AI for privacy-related tasks. So 11% of our respondents said they did. 20% said they plan to in the next 12 months, which interestingly enough, last year, 20% said the same thing. I don't know if it's the same people. Um, but 38% said they have no plans for AI for this function. That surprised me because maybe when people think AI, they think of you know the cheesy stock images you get when we search AI of like a robot walking around. But are you really not using AI in your systems to detect personal information or sensitive information like birth dates, especially considering the staffing challenges some organizations are facing and just, you know, the increased number of data subject access requests? I was really surprised that more people didn't say that they're going to rely on AI or are already relying on AI.
1: I know AI gets, gets you have the... um the Skynet dystopian type thing of, we don't right. want that in here. And the other, like you said, it's the little robots. So let's go the other way. What was encouraging about what you found?
0: I think the one thing that was just really encouraging was seeing that people working in privacy didn't feel quite as overwhelmed as they did this time last year. And we saw that, you know, funding is better. Staffing is better. All of that seems to be a little bit better. Um, I think the one thing that I would like to see some improvement in is we talked, you know, we were talking about privacy awareness training. We asked, how do you evaluate how good your privacy awareness training is? And I want to say it was less than a quarter of our respondents said that they do pre and post testing. Most people just treat it as a check the box exercise. How many people did it? I don't think that's a great metric. Is it a good training? Did anybody learn anything? Um, People are also looking at the number of complaints they receive about privacy and the number of privacy incidents that happen, which to me is far too reactive. At that point, the damage has been done. You've waited until something bad happens to improve your privacy awareness training. Um, so I would say that's one area where I'd like to see us maturing a little bit, just being a little bit more proactive in how we're looking at the effectiveness of privacy awareness training.
1: Yeah, the, getting the rubric of which to measure that's always, it's somewhat art and science that goes yeah. on with it. And, and it does very per organization or vertical or things like that. Somebody in a state and local government is going to have a little bit different thing than Mm -hmm. than what a commercial place Um, is there. So say I'm in a a small organization and, you know, privacy is something, you know, I, I want to sort of go take over. I know we're not doing a good job of it, but I need to get some air cover. What are some good resources or, or or things that they could do as, as a leader to sort of take on that mantle, take on charge that hill?
0: So I know I mentioned you know a good privacy awareness training, but I think it goes a step further instead of just saying personal information should be protected. Maybe make it a little bit more real. We can see real impacts of people who've been harmed because of potentially being stalked or just having too much information out there. This can make it a little bit more interesting, but also helps people see why privacy is so important. It's not just a privacy notice on a web page It's actually about data that represents humans and their lives and their families. And I think when we start to view privacy from that perspective, even people who don't work in privacy can start to see that it's something that they should care about. Because for some people, it actually might mean the difference between life and death. And as dramatic as that may sound, just with all of the information that's out there about anybody available from a very quick Google search, or maybe even a quick chat GPT search. Um, (laughs) It's incredibly important to understand there's a lot of information out there about us. And so as organizations, if we can act in ways that can limit the harm that can come to data subjects, we're going to have a significant competitive advantage. And especially an organization that's struggling to find their foothold or dealing with a lot of competition. If you are one that protects privacy and really prioritizes your users, that's ultimately going to be a huge competitive advantage.
1: I know that is a buying criteria for my wife and I, as we look at that, okay, how do they, and we use services because they, you know, or we don't use some services, we default to others because mm-hmm. they haven't, you know, they haven't been taking good care of stuff in the past.
0: I live in the state of Illinois, which has a very strong biometric privacy act. And I'm just the other day I got a check from Facebook for something they did I don't know what but I'll take it <laughs> um I think what this means though is that the average person who doesn't care at all about privacy is now starting to care yeah I have people who are friends with me and they said I got a check from Facebook what was that about and although they may not maybe okay with getting the check they're starting to think about privacy and understand, well, wait, what does it mean if a social media site has a mapping of my face and didn't ask me about it or didn't tell me about it? Um, so I think the average person is going to start caring more and more about.
1: Privacy. Yeah. You, you brought up a point I hadn't thought of before is from, from a generational perspective. There's those of us that grew up before that or built the internet along the way um, and, you know, and put it together. we have a different perspective of privacy than, my children or grandchildren do, how does that impact what regulations and stuff are getting in place? Is this something that's down the road, we're going we to have a bigger problem with it? or
0: Potentially. I I feel like in general, children just aren't quite protected as adequately as they should be. Uh, there's nothing stopping an eight-year-old from saying they're over the age of 18 and creating a social media account, right? There really isn't verification. Um I think there's also a broader question because now there's a generation that's grown up with their entire life, potentially pre-birth online, of right the moment their parents found what they were expecting, they posted on Facebook and when they were born and all of their major milestones. And I honestly don't know what the implications of that are. Um, I have started to see just recently, there was, I believe it was a YouTube family kid um, who wanted to seek damages because their life as a child was broadcast online. Um, That said, there aren't really laws or regulations in place, to the best of my knowledge, that are protecting people whose lives are online in this way when they're children and when their parents are the ones making these decisions for them. So that's something that I think probably should change, just because we don't even know what the impact of that is going to be in just a few years.
1: Well, and talking about change, and getting back to the original question, I, I think these are some of the things that are probably coming, maybe not immediately mm-hmm. or as fast as we would like. But what are some of the other things that you see that maybe bigger hurdles are, are the you know big rocks sooner?
0: I think one other thing that we're starting to see more is crack, cracking down against privacy dark patterns. So those are just things that trick you into acting in a way you wouldn't. You know, those confusing cookie notices where it's accept, or you can click learn more, and then you have to click a thousand times to say, don't track me. That's an example of a dark pattern. It's making it easier to click accept than decline, and enough people will click accept. Um, A lot of privacy laws and regulations don't specifically talk about it. However, We saw last year a few states' attorneys general sued Google because of dark patterns in Google Maps and not being completely transparent about what tracking was taking place. While I think a lot of privacy laws and regulations have done a good job at trying to get people's consent, some organizations have turned to tricking people into getting their consent. And I think that we're probably going to see more of a an emphasis on privacy dark patterns and ensuring that when people are giving their consent for tracking, they know what they're signing up for and organizations are communicating clearly.
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad you put a name to something that's been a bane in my existence for a while with clicking and stuff. And, and it, it is just a it's sort of like the end user license agreement and stuff that nobody can read because it's 8,000 pages long and we just click through and we don't know Mm-hmm. um we you know it, we need to simplify these things and make it very clear for you know like a, we'll go to jeff you know, explain to me like i'm a fifth grader let me understand right what that is and that's really that, that i would be all for that let's help make that stuff change because there's just some things that i don't think that they need mm-hmm. but i'm you know I'm, I'm of the again of the generation that uh still had a passbook for my savings account you know
0: <laughs> well you know there was a a bill last year, I don't believe it got passed. I don't know what happened with it. But there was a bill to basically create nutrition label style privacy information. Like, here's what we're tracking. And just a really quick, easy to understand thing. Oh, that would which be I good. Think, I think that could have been great just because you're right. Like, to actually sit and read the terms of service of everything, we'd have to all take two weeks off of work. I mean, it it's <laughs> just, just not realistic. <laughs> oh, Absolutely. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, Sophia, thanks for sharing your your experience and and a little more insight into this survey. I think it's great to get a better understanding of what's going on and I appreciate your time and I appreciate what you and your organization are doing.
0: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: I've been talking with Sophia Kazi, a privacy professional practice advisor at Asaka. If you'd like to learn more about data privacy, check out Focal Point, Tanium's online cyber news magazine. We've got links to several articles in the show notes, or visit tanium.com. To hear more conversations with today's top business leaders and security experts, make sure to subscribe to Let's Converge on your favorite podcast app. That really helps get visibility out. And if you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. We look forward to sharing more cyber insights on the next episode of Let's Converge.